Hello and welcome to the Data Cafe. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Jason. And today we are talking about a culture of innovation. Oh, this is a terrific topic for a data science podcast. I'm really excited about this. I think if if data science means anything, it is about culture of innovation and working that into a company and into a team. So for, what's it what, What's it mean from your perspective, Jason? Yeah, it could mean kind of a lot of different things to different people is what I figured out when I was talking to different people. You could have innovation with regards what it is that your company does, you know, the product that they have. You could have innovation with regards to processes around that product or service that they provide. You could have innovation with regards to the ways of working within the teams themselves and how they interact. So there's all these areas for potential efficiency gains. Mm -hmm. And there's a term that we came across before, I think Google put it out into the world, about 10x thinking, which is like taking innovation to the complete extreme and saying, whatever your innovative idea is, what's 10 times that idea? And what is it that's stopping us from getting to that point? And how amazing would it be to have such a shift or change in the world that achieves that? Now, again, this is tends to be on top of people's business as usual. So yeah. you're kind of asking a lot of them at that point. But people have ideas generally for innovation in their own sphere of influence. Mm. And unpacking that can be so powerful to then build into like what a team can do as an innovation piece and then influence what the company should sponsor as an innovative strategic steer. And I think the two concepts go together so well, don't they? The innovation, super important, but the culture, you just sort of referred to that in that last piece that the culture within the organization to be able to accept and then to cultivate that innovation. And I think that's, that's the thing that I've seen a few times that's been either amazing because the culture's just there and it's so open and people are so excited about a new idea and they want to explore the 10x, as you say, or alternatively, the culture's rather the other way aligned and, and you end up, you know, with an idea that withers on the vine because. Yeah, it's disruptive. Yeah, by its very nature. Right. And that disruption meets so many potential barriers that your culture has to overcome or has to embed a sense of enabling safety in various ways around that disruption. So like we said about processes or delivery of a service or product or how your team work together are they safe in how they might innovate or be disruptive against any of those processes so putting up the guardrails for example and um, but also in the culture are people psychologically safe and you can dig into this yeah. but it's like building out the idea that if i come up with something that's disruptive is everybody going to get on board with that and explore it? Or are we just trying to get through the day and keep that disruption to a low level? And different cultures need to deliver in different ways. So you may need to have a culture that very much focuses on a production line and getting that out and disruption is not ready, uh, like on the shop floor, for example. Mm. 
or you may have an innovative team who can be disruptive in their bubble of influence and looking at data. And this is where data science can tend to sit, but then bringing that out to the stakeholders in the business and getting that feedback in a safe way that hasn't caused a disruption that breaks something too much. I'll say too much, not too much. Yeah. I find, I find it even within one organization and, uh, you know, even the company I, I work in, it's, there are times when you want to sort of entrench, you want to, you want to just, just do the sort of complete finisher on the thing that you're doing or the set of projects you're, you're working on, your team's working on. And then there are, and then there are moments where you think, I now actually have to force myself to step back and think, what should I be doing differently? How can I be doing my job in a totally different way? Or how should I be realigning what I do and realigning what my team does? Because I, I think there are circumstances have changed. The company's grown. The team's grown. The projects have changed. The, the people we're working with are different from the ones that we were working with six months ago, whatever it is. And so suddenly there's a whole bunch of assumptions that we've just taken forward, which maybe don't hold anymore. And I find, personally anyway, I find switching between those two modes, I find that quite a hard transition. Yeah. I, I like doing it once I've got there, but I find, I find it quite a, a force of effort to, to, to go from, okay, we just need to get through this for the next couple of days, finish the projects off, really make sure they're high quality and we've got some great results that we can talk about too. How could we have just thrown everything up in the air and just, just done that completely differently but better? Yeah. There's something you mentioned in that about taking that step back. Like, to take that step back, there has to be space to, yes. to take that step back. And creating that space is part of a cultural influence. So there has to be... Mm, I mentioned safety before, but people have to feel enabled or empowered yeah. to pause and reflect. And we've talked about agile as a process has retrospectives in it. And a retrospective is just a way for people to review things. And there's all sorts of project management frameworks that include retrospectives in, in various forms. It's an important review process to reflect on what went well, what didn't go well, what we can do better. But from an innovation point of view, what is the big picture that we really need to be steering towards to make something truly innovative? And that's a big enough step back to look at the huge picture that this all sits under. But that's a massive cultural kind of embedded like sense of way of working. And there was one framework um, in a, a reference, I can stick in the show notes, Hogan and Coote in 2014, have these layers and a nice schematic that breaks them down layers of culture and they go from least visible up to most visible and it's the least visible layers of culture that aligns with the values that people and teams and the company have and not always are those values easily articulated and the values are a lot of the drivers of people's then behaviors and expected behaviors and then how people behave leads to the outcomes of how they work together and how they work together leads to the innovation that they're trying to work towards. 
and this this layers up and it's really nice to like put a visual on something that can be intangible yes you you said a, a key thing there which was the what drove this was the partly the safety that the 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 time the space but the values was the word that stuck out for me there and that 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 ties in with a, a lot of how a team and how an organization my experience operates is the sort of the core not just ways of working but the core things that really drive what they think about new problems whether they should even take them on how they treat each other how they treat people outside the team you know do, is is there an them and us is there an inside and outside anyway that kind of thing you know how does that enable this this innovation culture you're talking about it kind of comes together under there's an, another model that i used called the cultural web which outlines a paradigm of how all of these values themselves have dimensions to them so the cultural web brings in six different areas and they have they have different names but i I can list them out and and unpack them a little bit and they go from stories which is what people talk about so what's important to people in the company and that goes right up to how does the company present itself and showcase what's important to it so that stems from all of those values that are mentioned and rituals and routines and this is one that I really like against the behaviours and how people interact. What's the routine of the working day and the ritual around how people meet and capture actions and follow through? But also what's valued by management. So again, bringing values in where management showcase how they think people should behave. And that's the leadership dimension, role modelling the rituals right. and routines. There's control system. This is internal controls. What relates to budgeting, uh, performance, appraisals, how we measure quality on outputs and rewards and salaries like your remuneration package. Um, symbols. So the offices. Like, does the office inspire people? Uh, is there a dress code that might inspire people in a certain way to behave in a certain way? Uh, logos, what people see. Uh, yeah. Which you kind of not forget, but you might read articles about like some companies' offices being like mad altogether, you know, real colorful or it has a slide between two floors or yeah. um, has coffee on demand all the time and um, whatever nice touches might align with the values they're trying to instill uh, two more power structure so this yeah. is the power and influence who are the real decision makers and how do they value the evidence for the decisions that are made how they operate and direct and steer things in the company and then finally, the organizational structure. So the relationships across colleagues and across a hierarchy, formal structure and maybe informal processes. Like a lot of companies nowadays have open plan offices. So you get visibility of leadership and maybe visibility of decision making. Might make people feel more included. Um, so yeah, that's the cultural web. There's a lot in there. Wow. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's a lot to unpack. I thought it, when you going through that, and I thought the symbols one was was really interesting, and that the the way that the you know the office is maybe laid out, or the 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 sort of relaxed nature and the relaxed feel, and and, and I, I cast my mind back to when I was a lecturer and going to visit my students because we'd send our students out to come and, and had a couple of students go to to one of the Google offices in, in London. And they nice. were just, yeah, it was lovely. It was, yeah, it was, and it was just like you described. It was completely crazy, lots of sort of telephone boxes and yeah. video games and sort of massive, when, when Android phones were, were, were really cool, you know, it was a massive Android phone <laughs> yeah. in the lobby that you could, that you could interact with, that kind of thing. And they, they, they were, you know, they, they were having a lovely time. Clearly they were learning loads and it was great. But they took me to the canteen and said, Oh yeah, yeah, we get, we get free food. It's brilliant. Yeah. Get yeah, free food. Wow. That's really, that's really impressive and generous. And so, and then it sort of, sort of emerged. Yeah. Yeah. So we can work really late and we can eat, we can eat, when, you know, when, when, when we want. And I go, okay. And how often do you, do you work late then? Go, oh yeah. Most nights. Yeah. Yeah. It's, right. Okay. So it's interesting how some of those sort of symbols can get sort of morphed into sort of, I would say, coercive sort of behavior but certainly sort of slightly sort of slightly sort of pushed behavior nudged behavior towards towards uh yeah we, we get our employees to work from eight eight in the morning till eight at night you know most days or something like that <laughs> yeah yeah it can you can what's the word turn over into something that ends up being i think in google's case referred to as the google stone that when people first start working there, they gain a stone because they have all of this free food available. Oh, <laughs> I might be mixing that up with the uh, PhD stone, or no, the thesis stone, when you're writing up at the end of your postgrad and you just are sitting all day writing, 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 yeah. and eating because it's fuel for the brain. Yeah, yeah, I remember it well. For me, it was one food. It was very mono mono diet at that point. <laughs> Yeah, there's a close radius of the people that you give all of your money to to pay for your sandwiches and dinners because they're accessible and short time for time bursts of breaks. There was one other. There was one other example I had of a company, and this is slightly apocryphal, so I'm not going to name the company because it may not be true. Um, yeah. So, so um, whereas the Google thing, I believe, was true. It's like it was a, a an example of a what on the surface looked like a really nice cultural sort of input uh, into the into the melee, but actually underneath in the subsurface was actually a little bit Machiavellian. And it's companies who go, uh, you know, oh, we can we're really nice to our employees that they can have indefinite amounts of leave, a- any amount of holiday they can just take it. It's fine. But what they don't tell you is that at the end of the, of the performance year, you get reviewed on what you've done. And obviously, if you've taken six months off, chances are you haven't done as much as somebody who took three days off or, or, a, or a week and a half off and was working absolutely to the bone. And so it becomes this horrible competition between between all of these really high performing people to sort of take as little holiday as possible. Whereas, in fact, the company sort of on the surface was going, oh, yeah, you have as much as you like. But it has this reverse psychological effect of, of going, oh, I better not take any more holiday because... I won't be, uh, I won't be uh, rehired you know, in January or whatever it is. So it's a, it's a really interesting, and, and I think that would then massively impact all of those nice cultural um, space conversations that you were talking about uh, in terms of then, you know, the innovation and all that. Because for me, 
a well-rested person and a well-rested data scientist is one who can innovate effectively and, and, and a tired individual who's smart nonetheless is, is someone who is going to have a really hard time innovating and, and producing that, 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 that different way of thinking. Yeah, it's a really important point. And I actually studied a different model about um, organizational energy, it's called, and there's four quadrants. Um, I can't remember what they all are right now, but it was something like the productive quadrant is the one you want everybody to be sitting in, where it is uh, positive energy and um, very active energy. Like People are both framing things in a positive way for positive work together, but also very active so that they are enabled and empowered to pursue the work that they want to achieve together. Now, flip side of that is corrosive energy where people are really competitive, for example, but there's a negative energy there. And so it's a bit more maybe aggressive in how they work together to achieve their goals. And then there's two other quadrants that are variations on, on that, whether a company sits kind of in the more passive energy. They just, they do things and tick along and it's all fine, but there's not a productive energy or drive to like achieve beyond that. And you want to move your energy into the productive quadrant and you have to go through the others to get there. But a big factor is once you're sitting in that quadrant, is letting your people rest and recharge because they cannot sustain that energy for long amounts of time because it is tiring, exactly like you say. And one of the bits of criticism I have for that um, idea of taking as many holidays as you want is it potentially brings in the lack of psychological safety because you may put guilt on people who take holidays because it's not mandated. So you haven't been told you have to take your 20-odd days a year, whatever it is, in the policy and where you're working. Those days come guilt-free. They have to be taken. And people go to the end of the year and you're only allowed to carry over so many because you need to rest and recharge. And that's a good policy to have. Yeah. Whereas, it, again, it's funny because it seems like it's like, oh, why couldn't I have a bit more? You know, it's yeah, it seems like the dream. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> but yeah, it's it, it, it's actually healthy to have that nudge to go. Come on, guys, you need to take the holiday. You need to take this. And yeah. I, yeah, I mean, I I tell my team, look, I really, you, you know, you're not, you're not effective if 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 you if you're if you're exhausted, and 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 I I need to give you the space to to relax. I need to give you that 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 time to 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 just just enjoy yourself and 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 move away from the, the keyboard and the and the, the the strains of the project because i don't know about you but I, I find it hard to just go right i'm turning off now i i find it i find it it all buzzes around there's a lot of sort of yeah. project detail and stakeholder maps and how people are thinking about the project and all of that kind of stuff which just just keeps on buzzing around for sometimes days after I'm, I'm, I'm away. And so it just, it's, it's not something I can just go, okay, instant off. Some people I think can, and that's lovely for them. But, but yeah. So even that sort of mulling over can be quite, uh, quite, quite a tire, tiring process. And, and you're absolutely yeah. right. I mean, it's not just, it's not just slightly tiring. It's exhausting being innovative. I, I think are watching uh, again, really smart people really tackling hard problems that 
they don't know, and this is a feature of data science, they don't know whether those problems can be solved. So you've got this horrible combination of high uncertainty and high risk reward. And, you know, we might well fail, you know, right at the beginning of a project. And usually for most projects in the first few days, you get, oh, okay, we've got some progress. We're not going to fail. At least we're not going to fail. It's like this huge wave of relief that flows through the team at that moment um, when, when you sort of see that. In some projects, that doesn't come for two or three, two or three weeks, two or three sprints, and that's, and that's, that's super exhausting. <laughs> that's super yeah. exhausting. And you're probably not innovating if you're not at the risk of failure. That, that frontier is probably not being pushed hard enough if... X percent of efforts to innovate don't fail. Um, that's kind of where this 10x thinking might come into it, that we tend to innovate more safely because of accountability and because of cost and because of just hesitation that it will keep me up at night if I am really at risk of taking a huge leap here. And that's where all of this framework put in place around guardrails, training people, building support, allowing them to rest and recharge and feel energized to really pursue innovation in a way that establishes quick failure as one way to mitigate the risk that failure is going to happen. And then a big incentive for pushing that frontier of true innovation because people feel empowered to do it. Actually, there's a, a... article I read as well about this the article was I can't remember what it's called, but something about why innovation is really hard and mostly hard because it's difficult to sustain and it had five criteria for companies to consider for true innovate, for a true culture of innovation it, it, what, what, as I said at the start, you know, what enables data science, but 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 innovation? The, these problems don't come, you know, so rarely come pre-wrapped with a oh, this is a problem which you just throw a um, you know logistic regression module at or something. You know, it, you know, I'm not saying that doesn't happen, but but most of the time there is a there is one or, or maybe ten data science projects hiding underneath a business problem, and 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 it's not at all clear. You know, the innovation initially can be just picking apart a very complex business problem where you go, I don't really see how we can get any data science out of this at all. And then slowly, slowly you start to get into, into, in, in, into uh, discovering the underlying data, the underlying science, the underlying problem that, that, that would drive something effective and important within the, in the business. So I think, I think understanding how this innovation can, 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 can be, Enabled, harnessed, it's difficult to say. I don't think you can program it, but, but you know, I think it's, it's so, it's so, so important. Yeah, there's one, one of these aspects talks about that a bit, the experimentation, which is really truly at the heart of innovation. Isn't it? And an experiment has to be able to fail to prove or disprove the hypothesis that you've gone in with. And not everybody will know from the outset what it is they think the business should do. And that's where not knowing until you do the experiment means an outcome might mean, okay, we don't, we don't do that. It's not, it doesn't suit us. It's failed in some way. Yes. That's such a, such a good point. And that's why I absolutely love when we're setting up our, you know, whatever it is, is you use your sprint boards, your, your, your planning tools. I absolutely love setting uh, the tasks as questions where, 
And this is about, as you say, the safety within the team, safety within the organization and the cultural safety, where it is absolutely fine. If, if, the, if the question is, is it possible to build a model which anticipates um, you know, failure on a production line with 87% accuracy for wherever that comes from, it's absolutely fine for the answer to that to be no. It's not possible. Yeah. Not at least currently, not for us, not in the time frame available. But you know, maybe that triggers a discussion about whether eighty seven percent is the right figure, or what the uh, what, what 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 compromises could be um, uh, digested. But the fact that no is an allowed answer, and I so feel in so many organisations, no isn't an allowed answer. It has to be yes, or there is you know failure is seen as a real you know as a bad failure rather than just as an acceptable mode of progression. Going oh that didn't work, let's try that. Yeah, a learning. And it's a big bit of why I love the term data science, because scientists understand the experimentation phase and the setting up of a hypothesis and driving towards a conclusion either way, and a conclusion evidenced by the assumptions and the data and the models that you have to hand or have to build or, or drive in some way. So that was one of the big dimensions to this. And this um, article, I remember the name is The Hard Truth About Innovative Cultures. It specifically says that willingness to experiment has to come with high discipline. So you have to have a strict willingness to, they say, cull or reformulate or evolve based on the feedback of that experiment. And that's, I think, the hard part to separate from accountability. So people might feel accountable where they might, they're told, has this failed? And even just as a word, it's already weighted. And if you are the one to say, yes, it has failed, you want to very much frame that for your team and the people who are accountable as a learning, not as a failure, and set up a strict discipline to progress the knowledge sharing that enables future successes as a result of that and it turn it into an investment in the learning rather than a lost cause. That's lovely. And I think, I mean, so just as sort of thinking, in, take a step back and think about some of the, the things that you, you, you've, you've highlighted with this. Um, uh, the, the things that if we could, if we could summarize, if we could summarize the sort of the key elements of innovation cultural planning and innovation culture if you know, if you're in an organization that wants to be uh, uh, wants to have an, a culture of innovation mm-hmm. you know what, what would you say that, that they were I, I think there's a few that we touched on but you know what what would the yeah. sort of really important ones be well one recommendation off the back of that specific point yeah. about experimenting is and yeah it's the hard question of that's all well and good but what do we actually do one of the recommendations is you turn reporting of learnings, you know, not, not failures, call them failures if you're okay with that. Mm. You turn that into its own metric and everybody has to report that metric and that metric has to come with knowledge share across teams, if not at least within teams, so that everybody gains from the showcasing of the experiments. And you so have first a- class entities in their own right the learning process is 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 elevated for that yeah yeah like it yeah and then it's almost gamifying it you know no team then wants to have a report on their metrics with a missing metric 
you know, that's its own, <laughs> like, that's its own failure, but in process rather than in innovation. So if you're missing your metric on how many experiments failed, then you're not answering the question of how hard are you trying to innovate if you're an innovative team that's been mandated to progress in the ideas or strategies around whatever it is they're trying to, you know, innovate. Gosh, that's quite, that's quite, that's quite harsh. I mean, I, 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 mm. I love the knowledge sharing and I love the elevation of the learning outcomes, positive or negative, you know, um, but, but I, I wonder whether the, I mean, if you, if, if you can strike that balance, that gamification and make it a game that people enjoy playing and, you know, I know, you know, you know, there's nothing more. There's nothing more competitive than a data scientist, right? When it comes to when it comes to yeah. games of any sort, um, then that's that's lovely. But you know, if if you if you have it, if the second you call it a KPI, and you've got some someone from management looking over your shoulder, going, "You have you haven't done enough learning this month," <laughs> yeah. Then then does wouldn't you say that might that might have the reverse effect? That might then start go put the pressure on and you know remove the space to. The, the second that you get uptight about it is the second all innovation goes out of the window, I find. <laughs> That's interesting because I mentioned that there was five points in this article and one of the other points is a tolerance for failure but not for incompetence. So you cannot just put a failure in place just to hit that metric because there will be a focus on what was the experiment and why and why did it fail. Did it fail because we tried and failed as a result of a fair setup of an experiment with good, high-performing efforts in place and the failure was as a result of evidenced data lacking or process and not being ready or whatever it might be, as opposed to incompetence? And this is why this article is called The Hard Truth About It, because incompetence is a very dangerous word and people don't like to be challenged on their competence level. So for true innovation, people have to demonstrate their competence in setting up those experiments. That's, yeah, uh, that's that's another interesting... I mean, I, I, I of course they have to, people have to be competent at doing what they're, they're doing, but, um, you know, I, I'm equally aware that you know people are you know with different abilities you know they feel very pressured if they're asked to try and innovate in a field that they they're, they're not struggling in but 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 you know not 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 they don't perceive themselves to be expert in whereas yeah obviously if they if they're asked to innovate in a field that they have that grounding in then it's a more comfortable space for them to feel that they are entitled to to, to innovate there is that sort of sense i think of you know am i allowed to, to, to be innovative in a particular, in a particular area and data science being a conglomeration, we've said many times of about 15 to 20 different areas, if not more. Um, you know, it, it, there's, there's so many, there's so many, uh, levels of expertise that you, you might have to, to, to enable yourself to give yourself permission yeah. almost to, 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 to innovate. Yeah. There was another point that says that psychological safety has to be there. But, and again, the article phrases things harshly, but with brutal candor. So you have to have feedback for people. And one of the biggest feedbacks that you can give people in a positive way is the learning opportunity for them to upskill. And the 
What I like about that is it means you have to evaluate people's current skill set, which means you are not asking them to go beyond their current skill set without putting a learning framework in place to help them to do that and to develop and grow. So it's distinguishing incompetence from lack of skill. Gosh, yes. Um, and, and tied to that is uh, strong leadership. So none of that can be achieved without strong leadership, that leaders have to be close to the operational detail. They have to understand what it is their team is doing. They have to be able to translate it they have both ways, you know, from business requirements to the team and from the team back for the learnings and the support. And that's a really difficult role. And strong leadership is crucial in all of these points coming together. So I'm going to slightly misquote uh, President uh, Dwight Eisenhower here, because I think I think we have a, a nice way of uh, thinking about this. Um, I can imagine people thinking, listening to this podcast and thinking, um, well, I want to inter- introduce uh, introduce innovation into my company tomorrow, and this is this is what I'm going to do. So for those people, I think that this quote is for, for them, and it goes, I have always found that plans for innovation are useless, but planning for innovation is indispensable. Thanks for joining us today at the Data Cafe. You can like and review this on iTunes or your preferred podcast provider. Or if you'd like to get in touch, you can email us, jason at datacafe.uk or jeremy at datacafe.uk or on Twitter at datacafepodcast. We'd love to hear your suggestions for future episodes.